You're listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I get the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. Our title is The Ministry of Reconciliation, and our text will be 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 19. I'd initially planned to go all the way through verse 29, which completes the major section, but I bit off more than I could chew. So we're going to put down the fork and save dessert for another time and stop at verse 19. But for our reading of the text, let's go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. Grab your Bibles and follow along as we start things off on the right foot in God's Word together. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has come, behold, the new Sorry, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray as we come to this text this morning. Father, bless our time in your word as you've blessed our time in worship. You are worthy of all our praise, God, and now you are worthy of all our attention. God, I just pray as we look into this text that your word would come alive to us, that you would open our minds to see your call upon our lives. Work through me, God. May your spirit move this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Well, there's a story uh, written by an unknown author of a little life-saving station on a dangerous seacoast. It was a place of hidden rocks and swirling tides and shipwrecks were frequent. The station's lone building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but a few Devoted volunteers kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for their own safety, they went out day and night, tirelessly rescuing the lost. Many lives were saved, and the station eventually became famous. Some of those who were saved, along with others in the surrounded area, wanted to become associated with this life-giving station, this life-saving station. They gave time and money and effort to support its work. They bought new boats and trained new crews, and the life-saving station grew, and so did its life-saving mission. Some of those who volunteered at the station soon became upset that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt a a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency huts littered with cots into a new larger building with better furniture and nice soft beds. And as a result, the the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its volunteers. They decorated it exquisitely and began to use it as a club, as a place to hang out and celebrate their common mission and friendship. And in time, this club became formalized and even charged membership dues. Members now joined for social reasons, and fewer and fewer were interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So the membership hired lifeboat crews to do the saving work. The life-saving motif was still prevalent in the club's emblems and stationery, and they even put a symbolic lifeboat in the middle of, of their club meeting room. Well, about this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. 
Because these survivors were dirty and sick, they, they soon messed up and soiled the nicely furnished, uh, the nicely and beautifully kept club. And so the property committee immediately had outdoor showers built on the outside where the, club, where the shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before coming in. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activities altogether because they thought it was a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal life of, at the club. Other members insisted on life-saving um, as their primary purpose and pointed that, after all, this club was still a life-saving mission. But those noble, selfless members were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various shipwrecked people, they could do it at another life-saving station down the coast, which they would go ahead and make and do that. Well, as the years went by, the new station gradually faced the same problems the other one had experienced, and it too evolved into a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. And the few members who, may, who remained dedicated to saving lives founded yet another life-saving mission further down the coast. History continued to repeat itself, and if you were to visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent, but most of the people drown. What a tragic story of misplaced priorities. And I can't help but, but see in this, uh, in this story a strong connection of those lifeboat stations with the evangelical church. Over the last 2,000 years of church history, we have had countless churches around the globe, and yet the majority of unsaved people around them are ignored to die in their sins, with very few reaching out with the saving gospel message. The work of rescuing men and women out of the sea of sin, of saving people from the breakers of hell, is the greatest and most noble work the church of God is called to do. Spiritual life-saving is the essential priority of believers on earth. Now, the church, the church has many important functions. Don't get me wrong. It would be wrong to say the church has just one aim or just one goal. But if we were to rank them in order of importance, what would be the church's most important task? What would be the most important task? Well, many, I bet, would say fellowship. Deepening relationships with those of the same values and beliefs is undeniably necessary for the Christian. Others might say praising God through worship is the most important. And indeed, this is essential for the church. We are always to be exalting our Lord with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Others would say it's preaching the word that is most important. And as a pastor and preacher myself, I cannot disagree that this is to be the church's foremost function. This is to be what the church body centers around and feeds off of. The church is called to strengthen believers in the knowledge of and obedience to God's revealed truth. And preaching is central and must be central for a local church to thrive spiritually. But friends, while fellowship, preaching, and worship through songs are all fantastic priorities that cannot be neglected, ultimately these are not the reason why the church is on planet earth. That's not why the church is here. John MacArthur sums it up this way, a great quote from him. He says, if God's primary purpose for believers was loving fellowship, he would take us immediately to heaven, where spiritual fellowship is perfect, unhindered by sin, disharmony, or loneliness. If his primary purpose for believers was learning his word, he would also take us immediately to heaven, the only place where we can know his word perfectly. And if his primary purpose for us was to give him praise, he would take us to heaven, where praise is perfect and unending. There is only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on earth, to reach the lost, end quote. Friends, that is why we are here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we are still here for a purpose, evangelism. That is our first and foremost priority. That is our mission, our goal, our ministry. And as our text today will clearly explain, we'll see that as ministers of reconciliation, you and I are to persuade people to be reconciled to God. You and I are to persuade people to be reconciled to God. This is the greatest priority of each individual believer and is the greatest priority of the local church. So grab your Bibles again and let's get into our text. And through our time together in God's word this morning, we will ratify this central priority. Paul comes to our text in 2 Corinthians 5 on five and a half, or rather four and a half, heel, uh, four and a half chapters of defending and re-explaining his ministry. 
He has a long-standing relationship with the Corinthian church, but that relationship was now in jeopardy. It was now in jeopardy. Well, why? What, what happened to Paul's relationship with them? After all, Paul was their father in the faith. He was the, po- the first apostle to present Christ to them, who led them to saving faith. Acts 18.11 tells us that Paul stayed there for a year and a half on his initial visit. God said, I have many people in this city to be saved. And so Paul stayed and shared the gospel with them and started the church there. Uh, after his 18-month ministry there, Paul would move on. He, but he would soon hear of disturbing news from the Corinthian church. He wrote the Corinthians a letter that was corrective in nature. And this letter in God's providence was not copied and passed around, and so we don't have it in our Bibles today. It's not in here. It appears then that the Corinthian church wrote Paul a letter back in response, to which then Paul responded with another letter, 1 Corinthians, what we know as 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, Paul addresses what appear to be particular questions that they had asked him. He also spoke strongly against sin in the congregation, namely a factious and divisive spirit and tolerance of gross sexual sin. And after that, things seemed fine for a while. But all was not well on the Corinthian Isthmus. Years later, having heard more troubling news, Paul would actually leave his pastorate in Ephesus to visit Corinth, a visit that Paul calls in 2 Corinthians his painful visit. And at that visit, as he describes in 2 Corinthians, Paul was openly defied and insulted by someone, possibly a a false apostle. The Corinthians, however, did not defend Paul. He was left high and dry. Upon returning to Ephesus, Paul shot off an emotional letter to the Corinthians, one lost to history and also not in our Bibles. And it appears from his language in 2 Corinthians that he might have even regretted having written it, recognizing it may have done more harm than good. And so after some time had passed again, the tension settled down, and then Paul puts pen to parchment again and wrote the letter we now have in our hands, 2 Corinthians. So that's where we're at. It's kind of a, a big backstory here, but that's the context for the epistle before us. Paul was openly defied and insulted in Corinth, and the church he had fathered left him high and dry. Other traveling preachers, calling themselves proudly super apostles, had further tarnished Paul's reputation. And so in a twofold effort, Paul writes 2 Corinthians to defend the legitimacy of his own calling as an apostle of God and at the same time to reveal and explain what a legitimate, God-honoring, Christ-centered life and ministry looks like. This is what life should look like. This is what ministry should look like. The so-called apostles currently affecting the Corinthian church, they were focused on outward appearance as we're told in verse 12 today. Their ministry was all about looking good and having a church that looked good. But they they neglected the heart, the time-consuming work of real inner spiritual change. And 2 Corinthians is such an important letter. We need it today. So many churches have gone the way of showy, outward emotionalism. We need a letter like this. And I hope it's a letter that we as a church can one day delve into together. It's a fantastic, deep letter. But to the point at hand, Paul's apostleship is under question. He's being accused and attacked by these so-called super apostles. And so he writes this book to defend himself. Look back over to chapter 1. Turn back to your left a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He gives his thesis for writing. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a mouthful, so I'll sum it up for you afterwards, but let me just read it. 2 Corinthians 1, 12 to 14. Paul says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world without, with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What's he saying there? This this is his main statement. This is why he's writing. In essence, Paul is saying, I'm writing to help, uh, I'm writing to you to help you understand where I'm coming from, so you will continue to believe my message that I brought you. I'm not saying anything new, Paul says. You've heard it all before. That's basically this point of writing, that, you would, that they would believe him and his message to defend his ministry and defend the gospel. And in chapter 5 and verse 11, he gets right to the heart of it. This is what his life and his ministry are all about. And right here in verse 11, we get Paul's manifesto delivered. This is point number one. If you're taking notes in your, in your bulletin outline, Paul's manifesto delivered. He says in verse 11, Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
In one sentence, Paul explains everything about how ministry ought to be. Here in this one line, like a billboard slogan, he delivers it all. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. This is Paul's manifesto delivered. Well, let's unpack this incredible statement for a moment. There's so much in here. First, the therefore at the beginning. What's it therefore? Well, the immediately preceding verse is the context here Paul's referring back to. Look back at verse 10. It's a verse that speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. It says, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the judgment that believers will face, the, the bema seat judgment, if you will. As Christians, we still appear before God in judgment, though it's on a different nature than the great white throne judgment. It's not about heaven or hell. It is a judgment about eternal recompense, our rewards for good and our rebukes for evil. Because we all face this future time of giving account, this time of judgment, this bema seat encounter with Christ, because we all face this, we all should persuade others. That's Paul's argument here. We persuade others. And verse 11 is not just limited to Paul and his traveling companions. It is for all Christians. Everyone who will be there at the Bema judgment seat of Christ. Because of this future day of giving account, friends, every Christian should make it their business to persuade others to Jesus. That's our business. Now, why is this? Because as Paul adds in verse 11, we know the fear of the Lord. As Christians, we know the fear of the Lord. At least we should. Do you know the fear of the Lord? Does it guide your every waking moment? Well, maybe you're asking, what is the fear of the Lord? What does it mean to fear God? Those are great questions. The Old Testament itself is full of this concept. In fact, the fear of the Lord is, is so foundational. We're told in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's where all knowledge, true knowledge starts. Psalm 111.10 adds, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Friends, without fearing the Lord, one cannot truly know anything or be truly wise in anything. This is where all knowledge and true wisdom begins. So the fear of the Lord is a very, very good thing. It's a very, very good thing. But what is it? What, is it, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, in simplest forms, the fear of God is equal parts worship and dread. The fear of the Lord is equal parts worship and dread. Let me explain that. There is a, a peculiar awe and respect that we should have for God, for who he is. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and all-encompassing. He, he is worthy of all our attention, all our focus, and all of our worship. We revere him in worship because of who he is. But there's also a special dread and, and trepidation included in fearing him because of who you and I are compared to him. He is perfect and without sin. He is holy, 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 as the angels cried. He is set apart from all things wicked. And because of that, anything tainted by even the, the slightest hint of wickedness cannot approach him. Just one atom of evil in a person, one molecule of immorality is enough for that person to be cast forever from his sight. And that's where the terror and dreadful side of the fear comes in. You and I, friends, we're evil. In our heart of hearts, we are not good people. Hollywood is dead wrong. We are all bad. We are full of sin. We have broken God's commands again and again. And if we'd ever stop and think about it, we know intuitively that we should be condemned before a perfect and holy God. So on the one hand, we fear him because of his awesome greatness and towering majesty, and on the other hand, we fear him because of his coming judgment against all sin and sinful persons. We revere him for his awesome character, and we fear him for his awful wrath. That is the fear of the Lord. And it's the fear of God that inspired Paul in his ministry. And friends, it is the fear of God that should inspire us in our lives as well and drive us, be our motivating force. We should be living as God-fearers. Every single moment of our lives should have this understanding on our minds. The fear of God keeps us from sin 
and it drives us to holiness. It keeps us from ignoring God, from ignoring his word, and drives us to a closer relationship with him. Again, the fear of the Lord is a very, very good thing. It's a very, very good thing. Like Paul, you and I as Christians, we know the fear of the Lord. And we strive to know it more each day. But friends, the world around us does not. The world around us knows little or nothing of the fear of God. They have no true knowledge. They have no true wisdom. Their spiritual hearts are darkened and they live as fools, ignoring the God who gave them life. The God who can snuff out that life with just the slightest whim of thought. And so like a car with no brakes winding down a mountainside road, the lost are headed recklessly to hell. And so what's Paul's calling? What is true gospel ministry all about? It's about persuading people not to go to hell. It's about convincing them of their condemnation and helping them find rescue in the only place it can be found, the cross of Jesus. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Friends, we want to induce people by our words to believe We hate the thought of them going to hell. Yes, we know God is sovereign, but he has still called us. He's given us this mission. We can't stand that they will one day walk off a cliff into damnation. We hate that they reject God and that they reject the greatness of his love. And so we do everything in our power, everything we can to persuade them to turn to God. Now, we don't do this with emotional bribery. We don't do this with trickery or or showy things. We don't dumb down the message. We eschew the way of the used car salesman and instead we persuade people by God's means and according to God's standards. Turn back one page in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, he's already explained as part of defending his ministry. He's already explained to the Corinthians how he persuades people. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 reads, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, we don't tamper with God's word, but rather we openly state the truth. We don't minimize parts of the gospel message We don't skip over talking about sin. Paul says we don't practice cunning, but we do everything with a good conscience. Again, we don't go about presenting an inferior message to dumb things down or perhaps make it more palatable. We need to present the truth lovingly, winsomely, absolutely, but we do so in truth and in love. And in this way, we persuade people. So this is what a a healthy, God-glorifying ministry looks like, Paul's saying. Motivated by the fear of God, we convince, we coax, we cajole, we sway, we induce, we implore, we beg. Yes, we even persuade people to come to faith in Christ. This is Paul's manifesto. It should be ours too. Paul's delivered it. And now in the following verses, he once again picks up defending his ministry. The second point is that Paul's ministry defended. Paul's ministry defended. As I gave the context of this passage earlier, remember that Paul was under attack from the so-called super apostles, a church that should have defended him. He was their father in the faith after all. Instead, they denied him. So Paul defends the legitimacy of his ministry that was focused on winning souls for Christ as opposed to the charlatan's ministry that was focused on prestige and popularity. He points out the discrepancy here. Look at verse 11b is where he starts. Verse 11b says, but, we, but, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. The reality of Paul's ministry was known to God. It was exposed to God's viewing. God knows exactly what's going on. God knows Paul's heart, his motive. There's no need for him to defend himself before God. But his hope is that he would also be fully known to the Corinthians as well. He hopes that they and their inner man and their heart of hearts and their consciences will truly understand him and his ministry. And so in verse 12, Paul acknowledges that he now has to speak highly of himself. And that's uncomfortable, kind of like when writing a a resume for a job and you've got to put your best foot forward. It can be uncomfortable for us Christians to 
to do that. Paul's feeling the same way here. But he's not, he's not speaking highly of himself to be proud or to put himself on a pedestal, but rather that they, the Corinthian church, could be proud of him. He wanted the believers in Corinth to have a reason to boast about him to the false apostles and thus choose him and his message over theirs. You see that the naysayers who were after Paul discredited him on faulty grounds. By reaffirming his ministry credentials, as uncomfortable as that was, the Corinthian believers would now have grounds to boast in his legitimate ministry. And so he writes this letter to the Corinthian converts to give them the ammunition with which to defend his apostleship. And that's what the end of verse 12 says. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. That's why he's writing, so he can give them an answer. But look also how he characterizes those, those teachers, those who are misleading them. They take pride in appearance and not in heart. Paul characterizes opponents here as those who do ministry based on appearance. And as soon as this is spoken, you and I instantly recognize that appearance-based ministry is faulty. We quickly think to God's words through the prophet Samuel when he said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart, that, that innermost being of people, that is what God looks at. And yet so much ministry in our world today, just like in Paul's day, is showy chicanery, charlatans that focus only on appearances. One of the most uh, stark examples of this that I've experienced in my own life was during a summer mission trip back in Albania, summer of 2010. Most of our seven weeks there were spent in the bustling capital city of Tirana, Uh, but one day a few of us on the team had the privilege of traveling north with a missionary to go meet some of the poorest of the poor. to to bring them necessary goods, some needed provisions, and to register their teenagers for an upcoming soccer camp. So we hopped in this missionary's car and drove almost three hours north. By the time we arrived in the area, we were an hour by car from the nearest convenience store. But there weren't any cars in this rural place. Everyone there walked. We drove in on a dirt road along the valley floor. To our left was roughly 300 yards of flat grass land, and beyond that, gradually rising hills covered in mint leaf plants. To our right, more matching hills went up just next to the road. There was no village, no store, no grouping of homes to announce we had arrived. Instead, we were greeted with a magnificent modern cathedral. It was beautiful. Probably less than 20 years old uh, at the point since communism fell in 1991. Uh, And such an edifice would have made any pastor's eyes water for its sheer exterior attraction. Here we were in the middle of nowhere, And before our eyes was a gorgeous Roman Catholic church surrounded by black fence bars and then minty hills and grassy valley floor. It made no sense given the remote area we were in. And the contrast was even more embarrassing when a little further down the road, we arrived at the primary residence for the area, an abandoned communist-era penitentiary. Yes, 80% of the locals lived in an abandoned jail. We drove in past discarded fences and decrepit outposts, parked the car at random in the dirt, and went inside through the only visible door in this large prison. Down a narrow cement hallway, we then entered a jail cell that was converted into a home. A door was hewn through the wall into an adjacent cell to make for a kitchen, and this dank and musty two-cell home housed a whole family. A single light bulb dangled above our heads from an electric wire, which added to the light from a small window that had somehow been cut through the exterior wall. This family here joyfully served us tea and bread, and we enjoyed a conversation through our broken Albanian and missionary interpreter. The multi-million dollar Catholic church building did nothing for these people to relieve them in their physical toil. Each family unit earned roughly $300 a year, collecting mint leaves off the nearby hills and selling the bundles. But not only were their physical needs left unmet, their souls were still very lost. This is one of the most egregious failures I've seen when it comes to a showy church. So many people in the world forget about the heart and soul of ministry and have made it all about external appearances. But Paul says hogwash on appearances. Paul was content to take his stand not on what was outward, not on what was verifiable by data and numbers, but on what was in the heart. His focus was on the unseen transformation of the heart. And friends, that's our goal here at First Baptist Church. We don't want to be a showy church. 
or a church that has two services just overflowing with people or three services even, our church focuses on spiritual growth, the things of the heart. In verse 13, Paul continues his defense by putting forth two apparent charges that had been leveled at him. Two charges that had been leveled at him. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, For we are beside ourselves. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. You had people on one hand saying Paul was over the top. He was too energetic, too outrageous in his zeal, expected too much. You're too eccentric, Paul. Other Christians cannot be expected to live up to that fanatic lifestyle. Paul says, if that's the truth, if I'm crazy, I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it for God. Others were contradicting this and saying, no, no, no. Paul was totally in control of himself and logistical in his reasoning. Whatever zeal he put toward the gospel, he was in control and and well thought out in his approach. He wasn't a fanatic. And so Paul's response was that if if that was the case, if they saw him as self-controlled, they did it for him. Whether he was beside himself or of right mind, he did it for them. Now what would cause a person to be both zealous and yet sober, fanatical and yet reasonable? Verse 14 holds the answer. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. This is not speaking about Paul's love for Christ, but about Christ's love for Paul. Friends, Paul understood the depths of God's love for him, a love so great that Christ would leave his glory in heaven and come down and live on a sin-saturated planet and die the most humiliating of deaths. As Pastor Hans helpfully taught back in Philippians 2.8, Christ went from the highest of highs imaginable to the lowest of lows imaginable. From the greatest exaltation of heaven, he humbled himself to the lowest humiliation of the cross. From the highest to the lowest. Why? Out of love for the likes of you and me. Out of love for us. Friends, such a love overwhelms us when we stop and think about it. Can you feel in your bones the the full weight of what Christ has done? Can you grasp the depth of Christ's selfless love that would motivate him to forsake the greatest glory for the goriest demise? God has revealed his love toward us and that while we were yet wicked sinners, Christ died for us. Such a love, friends, such a love hemmed Paul in. The word control there, it's this idea of hemming him in, controlled, compelled. He was forced into a bucket and then compelled to do something because of it. It leaves him no other option. The love of Christ leaves Paul, leaves us no other option but to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. That is what the love of God should do when we understand it. It drives us to selfless service for God out of love for him. And God's love that then beckons us to love others. Such a love should literally have a controlling influence on our lives. And that's what the rest of verse 14 and 15 are explaining. Why am I compelled? Why am I controlled by Christ's love? Verse 14 and 15, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In theological shorthand, Paul is saying that just as Jesus died to save all who would believe, so those believers have all died with Christ and have all been raised to new life with Christ. Because of this new life, all Christians should stop living for ourselves but instead live for Christ alone. In Christ's one death, all Christians died spiritually and all have risen to new life with new purpose. Friends, we who live, we who live spiritually because of Christ, we are not to live for ourselves. Our lives, they're not our own. They've been bought with a price. We must live for Jesus Christ who died and rose again on our behalf. That is what pure gospel ministry looks like But even further, friends, that's what normal Christian living looks like. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but for Jesus. So I ask you, are you living sold out for Jesus? Have you surrendered everything to him? Not just your sins, but your time and your talents. Not just your Sundays, but your seven days a week. 
Now, nobody's asking you to quit your job and go into vocational ministry. No. The love of Christ actually asks for more. Are you making your full-time job your full-time ministry? Do you have a job simply to make money and live a comfortable American life? Or do you have a job so you have a platform to persuade men? Do you raise kids in the home simply so you can have a family, be fulfilled, and look good in the eyes of the world? Or do you raise your kids so that they'll love Jesus? Are you fashioning arrows, gospel arrows, you can shoot out to the world? Or in your retirement, do you have scores of free time so you can kick back, play golf, and play with grandkids and collect shells on the beach? Or are you now retired so you have time and opportunity to be a witness for Jesus and persuade men? Friend, Christ's love for you, revealed in his humble death for you, should transform you and compel you to live not for you, but for him. The gospel compels us, friends. As verse 15 concludes, we are no longer to live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Charlatan Christians are just like the charlatan leaders Paul was defending himself from. They live for themselves. Their life and their time and their resources are about themselves. But friends, the world is voluntarily living in jail cells of sin. They're voluntarily locked away. Are you building a pristine cathedral with your life that looks great on the outside but offers no help to those in sin? Friend, let us not be charlatan Christians. May our lives not be about ourselves but about living for the one who has given us new life. May that be what we're known for individually and as a church. Now it's straight from this defense of his ministry that Paul moves seamlessly into how God has entrusted him and us with this mission. And in our third point, we get Paul's mission dispensed. Paul's mission dispensed. God has given us all a mission. He has dispensed it from his hand. God gave Paul the ministry of reconciliation and he's given it to us as well. Ours will certainly look different from Paul's. We're not supposed to go uh, church hopping necessarily around Galatia or Asia Minor. Uh, ours will look different from Paul's. Ours will look different even from each other. But a ministry we have nonetheless. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. In light of the salvation described in verses 14 and 15, something radically changes in our thinking. Look at verse 16 now. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, Paul writes, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Just as we changed our initial opinion about Christ, we need to change our opinions about all people. You see, Paul and, and the other original apostles, <clears throat> they all thought that Christ was merely a human when they first knew him on earth. They just thought he was a, a really great guy who was going to lead the Jews back to a, 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 a local area kingdom, a rule. They formerly knew him according to the flesh among those means. But after his resurrection and ascension, they knew him in this way no more. And the same transition has occurred for all human beings. Now that Christ has come and flipped the cosmic switch, as it were, reorienting all eternity to himself, all mankind is now to be regarded as spiritual and not fleshly. People are not just bones with muscle and skin attached. We all have eternal souls that will never perish, and we all need to think that way about people. We must stop thinking on simple fleshly terms. This was the pattern of false apostles that Paul was defending himself against. They looked at the external, such as rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile. We must not do that, Paul says. There are ultimately only two types of people in this world, saved and not saved. God-honoring Christians like Paul, we think this way now. This is how we must think. Why? Verse 17 adds to it. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ, he's made all things new. In particular, he has made believers brand new. We are new creatures. We've been separated from the creatures we once were. The world's lines of distinctions are now gone and as one is left. Spiritual distinction. The verse shows us that you and I have been rebirthed and created by God. The old has gone, past tense, done. The new has come, perfect tense. It's here and it's here to stay. We've been made forever new. And so the reality that Paul is getting at here is that there are no more earthly distinctions between people. 
Through the lens of Christ, there is only one race, the human race. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And so we don't think on social distinctions that the world thinks on. Instead, we only think about people in these two ways, Christian and not Christian. Slave to sin or slave to God. That's the only way we can think about people. Because of Christ, we ultimately think on these two planes. Yes, we can have a ministry to ethnic minority groups. Yes, we can reach unreached tribes. But friends, just remember, they're no more special than the person living in that red house over there or the gray one on that corner. Every person is an eternal soul and the gospel must go to everyone. That is what true God-honoring ministry focuses on. Paul's detractors in Corinth were focused on wealth. They were focused on the influential, on some demographic that would prop them up and make them, look to, make them look good. And may it never be for us. May we be just as quick to welcome into our homes or into our church the scruffy-looking young guy who desperately needs a shower as quickly as we would that, that happy middle-aged couple that looks nice and affluent. And we'd be ready for all. Paul continues in verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I just love that. God did all the hard work. God did all the hard work. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. To reconcile is the idea of restoring a relationship. A relationship that's been broken or severed, it's restored again and made new, made whole. God did that work when he sacrificed his son on the cross. He reconciled you to himself. And now he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given it to us. Do you see that verb there? Don't gloss over it. Gave. He gave us this ministry. It's a gift to us. It's his blessing and favor to us that we get to lead the way in the ministry of reconciliation. What a grace from God that he gives us this ministry. Friends, it's not something to shy away from. It's no ugly sweater that your grandma gave you that you wish you didn't have to wear. It's no present that you want to take back, but you can't find the gift receipt. This is a perfect gift from God. We have been blessed beyond belief with the ability to work with God as God's servants in reconciling others. And that is the word here for ministry. It's the word servant. Uh, It's the word that we often translate deacon. We have been gifted the service of reconciliation. So friends, how are we to serve God? by actively working to reconcile others to him. That is our primary act of service to God in this world. Verse 19 even goes so far as to say that it's been entrusted to us. God has trusted you with this ministry. He has given it to you and even entrusted you to do it. Are you being a worthy minister of reconciliation? Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God's done all the work. He he was not obligated to reconcile the world to himself. It was the world who sinned and broke the relationship, not God. He's He's not ever done anything wrong that should inspire him to initiate reconciling with anyone, but he did it. And we, the world, so full of sin and rebellion, we have broken away from God. We cut the ties of the relationship with him back in the Garden of Eden, and we've done absolutely nothing to reestablish it since. And yet God, in love, reached down to earth and solved the problem through the person of Jesus Christ. His innocent blood shed on the cross, satisfied satisfied God's justice, and repaired the breach with the world. So much so that God is no longer counting the trespasses against those who come to him. He's not counting our trespasses. The verse says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now friends, this is not universal salvation. Some might like to think that he's reconciled the whole world. It's not saying that God saved everyone. It's not saying that. Otherwise, why would we need to be reconcilers? Why do we have this ministry if God saved everyone? That's not what it's saying. Paul is explaining that salvation has been opened up to the whole world. God has done his part to enable reconciliation with anyone. In other words, everyone in the world can accept God's offer now. Everyone can accept God's offer. 
And it's in that sense that he's reconciled the world to himself. So not everyone is saved, but only those who by faith and repentance find salvation in Jesus Christ. God did his part, but to receive him for oneself and the benefits of what God has done, there still remains the human response. We must accept the wrong we've done, repent of it, and accept God's forgiveness and new life, putting our faith in Jesus. And this is the mission, friends, that's been dispensed to you and to me. This reconciliation that God has made with the world is ours to proclaim and ours to share. We are to persuade men to be reconciled to God. We are ministers of reconciliation. That's who we are. Well, as we've covered our allotted verses for this morning, I want to look back over them now and focus briefly again on, on Paul's ministry motives. What drove Paul to live sold out to this ministry of reconciliation? Why should you and I give ourselves fully to this ministry as well? Paul's first ministry motive, which is also ours, is the coming judgment of God. The coming judgment of God. Remember verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. The fear of the Lord, equal parts worship and dread. But for the lost, that fear is really 100% dread. It's 100% terror because the terrors of hell loom large before them. Paul understood their dire state and he wants to snatch them from the flickering fires of hell. And so we persuade men because God's judgment of hell looms large like a dark rain cloud ready ready to burst over the heads of sinners. Our second motivation for ministry is the love of Christ. The love of Christ for people. The love of Christ for people. Verse 14, we read, the love of Christ controls us. Christ's love is so great that Paul has no other recourse but to serve him. The overwhelming nature of Jesus' love, again, hedged Paul in and left him with no choice but to be this servant of reconciliation. Think about God's love again for a moment. It was love that brought Jesus out of the glories and eternal comforts of heaven. It was love that led him from his king-sized bed of gold to a manger-sized bed of straw. It was love that kept his focus through 33 years surrounded by wickedness and corruption without taking the easy road and rushing back up to heaven. It was love that willingly went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice, not defending himself at his trials. It was love that kept himself nailed to that cross, though he had the power to come down at any time and heal himself from his bleeding wounds. And it was love that pinned down the God of life dead for three days in a tomb. Paul was motivated to evangelize because love, the love of God for him. Friend, have you truly received, experienced, and understood this love? Have you felt your own soul, on your own soul, the full weight of what Christ did on the cross? He drank God's wrath for sinners down to the dregs that all who would believe in him might be counted righteous, in his sight. It's the eternal swap. All of his righteousness for your rags. All of your rags and sin for his righteousness. Verse 21 talks about that. So I ask you in light of this, will you cease to live for yourself and but rather for him who for your sake died and was raised? That's another motivation the love Christ has for us. And the third motivation that Paul has was that ministry is a gift from God. Ministry is a gift from God. Paul understood that God could have done all the saving work himself. God could have chosen, God still could choose to take us straight to heaven. Right? He could take us there. He could use the rocks, the scriptures say. The rocks could cry out and proclaim his glory. But no, as verse 18 tells us, God gives you and I this wonderful ministry of reconciliation as a gift. We get to proclaim the glories of God to people who don't know it. There's so much wonder in that. And just as many of us would say the greatest joy in this life is the birth of one's own child, one of the greatest joys you'll ever experience is being involved in the rebirth of a child of God. Seeing someone come to faith in Christ, there's perhaps nothing more amazing than sharing the gospel with someone and seeing them put their faith in Jesus Christ. Such a gift we have received. Friend, will you embrace this gift and make your life's passion be about God's gift to you? Remember, This ministry is not the only gift you've received. Ephesians 2.8 calls your salvation the gift of God. That was the greatest gift of all time, your salvation. 
So Christian, would you embrace the, the gift of salvation he's given you, but reject the gift of ministry that he's also given you? Embrace both gifts. May it always be said of us that we do so. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned to Christ to find salvation from your sin. Maybe you're watching us online and you've never known this love. Would you receive this gift from him today? Salvation is the most marvelous gift. It is freedom from the penalty of your sins. It is escape from the broiling fires of hell. It is a clean and pure conscience before God and men. It is eternal life with God forever. And it is the joyous ministry of leading others into the same relationship with God. Would you fear God as you ought and receive the gift of salvation today? If you need to do that, do that today. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. There is no better life than to praise and worship God for all that he has done and to lead as many as you can into worshiping him with you. Church, may we not be like the life-saving stations on the seashore that had forgotten their primary duty. May we not watch the world drown in the sea of sin while we have our comfortable church club on the shore. Instead, let us embrace our mission with joy and confidence and go and reach a dying world in Jesus' name. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible gift you've given us. Lord God, I know how much I fall short of being your minister. And I know we all feel the pang of, of coming up short before you is in our life. God, may we do so no more. May we commit this day to being your ministers, your servants, even your ambassadors, God, with the gospel message. Forgive our, our shortcomings. Forgive our fears. God, help us to grow. May we be your agents to a lost and dying world. God, we thank you for your word and how it convicts us. And we thank you for your word and how it equips us. You've not left us without guidance. You've not left us without a guide. You've given us the Holy Spirit to call to mind things to say. You've given us your word where we can study and know and grow in wisdom and knowledge and in both the gospel and all things of life. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, work in mine, work in the hearts of these people to grow in their love for you, their knowledge of you, and to take that and to share it with other people, Lord God. May we do so for your glory and the world's good. In Jesus' name, amen.